0: Welcome! You're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print-impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Hi, I'm Mike Paul, and welcome to this podcast of articles from Ars Technica, a presentation of ARS LA. We have four articles for you today. We'll take a look at Chrome's new advertising system called Topics... Spy on Mount Etna with fiber optic cables. Try to find out why the Canary Islands eruption didn't act as we expected. And we'll shoot the breeze with some wind-powered kites to see if they might be powering our homes in the future. So let's get into it. Our first article is by Ron Amadeo, published on March 31st, 2022. Chrome's Topics advertising system is here, whether you want it or not. Google is on a quest to kill the third party web cookie, which is often used by advertisers to track users for targeted ads. Unlike other browser companies like Apple and Mozilla, which block third party cookies outright, Google is one of the world's largest advertising companies. It doesn't want to kill the third-party cookie without first protecting its primary revenue source. Google seems to view user tracking as a mandatory part of internet usage. And instead of third-party cookies, it wants to build a user tracking system directly into its Chrome browser. Google's eye-roll-inducing name for this advertising system is the Privacy Sandbox. And on Thursday, the company released its latest tracking solution in Chrome's nightly Canary builds. The latest Chromium blog post laid out the current timeline. Starting today, quote, "...developers can begin testing globally the topics, fledge, and attribution reporting APIs in the Canary version of Chrome. We'll progress to a limited number of Chrome beta users as soon as possible." Once things are working smoothly in beta, we'll make API testing available in the stable version of Chrome to expand testing to more Chrome users, Topics will have Chrome locally track your browsing history and build a list of interests, which Chrome will then share with advertisers when they ask for ad targeting. If you want a breakdown of the API name-checked in Google's statement, the Fledge API, that's Fledge, F-L-E-D-G-E, is responsible for both running an ad action directly on your device and picking an advertiser and then targeting users based on behavior, like leaving an item in a shopping cart. The attribution reporting API is responsible for measuring ad clicks, impressions, and tracking purchase conversions. Besides getting the first build of the system up and running for advertisers, Thursday's release also gives us a look at what the user controls will look like. There is now a Chrome Settings Privacy Sandbox page where you can enable or disable the trial. The browser-based ad personalization page lets you see what topics Chrome believes you're interested in, and you can remove any you don't like. Again, this is only on the experimental Chrome Canary browser, which no one uses as a daily driver, so it will be a while before most people see these controls. Google has the first prototypes out there and said, we strongly encourage developers to share feedback publicly and with Chrome, and we'll closely monitor progress along the way. We also welcome the role industry associations can play in this process, from facilitating collaborative industry tests to aggregating feedback themes. Google's first swing at a Chrome user tracking system was called Flock, F-L-O-C. But after many privacy advocates spoke out against that idea, Google dropped it and pivoted to the current Topics solution. There isn't a huge difference between the two systems, other than it seems less likely that someone would be able to individually target a user with the Topics API. It's hard not to find both proposals extremely gross. Google argues that it is mandatory that it builds a user tracking and advertising system into Chrome, and the company says it won't block third-party cookies until it accomplishes that. Google built its empire on the back of its advertising and user tracking systems and receives 82% of its total revenue from ads. A lot of Google products are developed, launched, and shut down with absolutely no bearing on Google's bottom line. But this is the foundation of the Google empire that we're talking about. It seems existentially important that Google forces a favorable outcome no matter what the rest of the internet says. Our second article is by Matt Simon from Wired.com, published on April 10th, 2022. Scientists spy on Mount Etna with fiber optic cables. Towering 11,000 feet above a million humans, Mount Etna is one of the most thoroughly monitored volcanoes on Earth. Hundreds of sensors dot its flanks, and for good reason. It's Europe's most active volcano, periodically spewing lava and huge plumes of debris that ground plains and generally make life miserable for those living in its shadow. But now, scientists have been spying on Aetna with an unlikely new surveillance device, fiber-optic cables like the ones that bring you the internet. Writing last week in the journal Nature Communications, researchers described how they used a technique known as distributed acoustic sensing, or DAS, to pick up seismic signals that conventional sensors missed. This could help improve the early warning system that people in the surrounding parts of Italy rely on. Millions of people around the world are also at the mercy of active volcanoes, which create chaos whether they are large or small. DAS is shaking up, sorry, science in a big way. When the internet was growing in the 1990s, Telecoms ended up laying down more fiber-optic cable than they needed, since the material itself was cheap compared to the labor required to bury it. That extra cable remains unused, or dark, and scientists can rent it out to run DAS experiments. Engineers use it to monitor land deformation, geophysicists use it to study earthquakes, and biologists are even using underwater cables to pick up vibrations of whale calls. Fiber optics work by transporting signals from point A to point B as pulses of light. But if the cable is disturbed by, say, an earthquake, a tiny amount of that light gets bounced back to the source. To measure this, scientists use an interrogator, which fires a laser through the fibers and analyzes what comes back. Because researchers know the speed of light, they can determine disturbances at various lengths along the cable. Something happening 60 feet away will bounce back light that takes slightly longer to get to the interrogator than something happening at 50 feet. These measurements are sensitive. For example, in the spring of 2020, During the early days of COVID-19 lockdowns, scientists at Pennsylvania State University used their campus's buried dark fiber optics to observe as pedestrian and vehicle movement waned and picked up again. They could even tell the source of the above-ground disturbance by the frequency of its vibration. A human footstep is between one and five hertz, whereas car traffic is 40 to 50 hertz. This new research centers on the same idea, Only these scientists did it on an active volcano. Because telecoms never bothered to lay fiber optics on Mount Etna, the researchers dug a three-quarter mile long ditch less than a foot deep and buried their own, not far from the volcano's rim. In the image above, you can see how the fiber optic cable was situated, its two branches outlined in white and black. The red and yellow lines are faults. The dots running along the cables are spots where the scientists had conventional sensors, like seismometers, which use pendulums to detect movement, and geophones, which convert ground movement into electrical signals. Because these sensors and the cable were co-located at those spots, at C666 and C667, and so on, the researchers could compare how the different techniques were monitoring activity. The image above shows what a volcanic explosion, not a full-on eruption, in September 2018 looked like to the DAS network. The sensing stations are noted at the top of the graphic. The red and blue represent the deformation, or strain rate, at which the cable elongates and contracts at a given time for every six feet along the length of the cable. Quoting, So if the cable itself is, let's say, extended or compressed, then we see that in the signals, says Charlotte Krawczyk, a geoscientist at German Research Center for Geosciences and Technical University Berlin, co-author of the paper describing the work. With all other seismic equipment, she says, we don't do that. We measure the acceleration of the surface, or things like that. Notice the darker vertical red and blue band at C671, which is an increase in the signal's amplitude. If you look back at the map, you'll see that 671 is sitting right on a fault. This is probably an area where the density and the velocity of the ground is different, says geoscientist Philippe Jusset of the German Research Center for Geosciences, lead author of the paper. That changes how the energy ripples through the Earth and subsequently how the DAS reads the event. The cable detected other volcanic happenings as well, which the conventional sensors either missed or barely recognized. It caught degassing events, in which the volcano releases a plume of water vapor and other gases like carbon dioxide. People on Aetna at the time actually recorded video of this, ground-truthing at its finest. DAS also recorded single tremor pulses which were distinct from degassing due to the lower frequency of their signal. Think about how cars and pedestrians were distinct in the Penn State study. The researchers reckon these pulses could be the movement of gas or liquid at depth, which in turn drives degassing events. All of this is clearly sketched out in the fiber data, whereas conventional sensors fell short. One of the main benefits of DAS that often tends to be overlooked is that DAS can pick up things in a lot of frequencies, says geophysicist Ariel Lelouch, who uses the technology at Tel Aviv University, but wasn't involved in this study. An infrasound sensor, by contrast, only picks up low-frequency sounds. Plus, DAS is easier to maintain. The fiber just lays there, compared to traditional sensors that need telemetry, and sometimes they need batteries and you need to replace them. Lelouch says. DAS could complement the traditional ways of monitoring volcanoes, says Marco Aloisi, who studies Etna at Italy's National Institute of Geophysics and Volcanology, but wasn't involved in the research. Because so many people live around it, Etna is closely watched, with some 200 monitoring stations. But this requires a lot of people power, and the less time people spend on an active volcano, the better. The real challenge is having many human resources and a reliable technology to allow a continuous operation of the entire system, says Aloisi. DAS, on the other hand, is a more passive system. You lay the cable, and the data pours in. In a sense, you're building a seismic observatory with fiber, says Lelouch. And then you can come back years later, unless the fiber has been melted by some huge eruption. The authors of the paper want to try cables that are many miles in length, thus providing even more data. And in the future, scientists might even make a full loop around a volcano, providing 360-degree data that could advance recent improvements in early warning systems. A week before Aetna's explosive eruption in July 2001, for instance, data gathered by GPS instruments showed that monitoring stations were moving farther apart, indicating that Aetna was bulging with magma that had moved up from lower depths. Back then, there wasn't the real-time monitoring that there is now, so it took scientists a few days to process the data and issue a warning. Luckily, in that case, they knew early on that the eruption wasn't going to be a serious threat to people. Perhaps, says Aloisi, DAS could pick up the signals that those conventional sensors miss, honing the warning system even further. This technology allows small signal detection, detailed structural imaging, and a more acute understanding of the dynamics underlying magmatic processes, says Aloisi. The earlier the warning, the earlier people can evacuate and the more lives can be saved. To extend this time to warn people and to help them get away from the event, this is the purpose, always, Krawczyk says. If we understand much better what processes might be precursors and that indicate what could be a new parameter for warning, this could be an incredible new knowledge. Our third article is by KED Cone, published on April 5th, 2022. Canary Islands' eruption didn't act as we expected. We can now ask why. Last fall's Cumbre Vieja volcanic eruption in the Canary Islands was surprising for several reasons. Most predominantly, the eruption did not cause tsunamis to spread across the Atlantic Ocean, as some experts had predicted. But for volcanologists— the eruption displayed several other unexpected features that may help experts better forecast which volcanoes are most at risk of calamitous eruptions, allowing for better long-term planning for La Palma and similar volcanic regions. Researchers are still in the early stages of analyzing the wealth of data they collected during the nearly three-month-long eruption—85 days and 8 hours to be precise— But, as highlighted in a recent Perspective article, the eruption may answer a number of ongoing questions while raising several new ones, particularly about its surprise finale. The 2021 Cumbre Vieja eruption lasted longer and produced more lava, over 200 million cubic meters, than any other in La Palma's recorded history. This long duration, combined with the relatively convenient location of the Canary Islands, provided a rare opportunity for researchers around the world to study the volcano's progress in detail. The observations included geophysical and geochemical measurements before, during, and after the eruption, as well as insights into the magma flow below ground and the lava paths above. According to Pablo J. Gonzalez, a geodynamics researcher at the Estación Volcanológica de Canarias and author of the perspective article, this data could transform risk assessment and planning for the islands and other volcanic areas. Quoting, There are multiple ways in which this eruption and the data collected will contribute to a better assessment of future volcanic hazards in the Canary Islands, Gonzalez told Ars. This includes refining the prediction of the lava flow pathways and how those lava flows interact with infrastructure or objects, for example, banana plantations and their plastic covers, and improving land planning permissions and the placement of critical infrastructure, roads, factories, harbors, etc. Toxic gases from the combustion of buildings and materials caused significant additional hazards, Another key piece of new safety information came from measuring which gases were emitted, and in what quantities, as the lava moved across the landscape and met the sea. The behavior of the eruption was also unexpected in several ways. Cumbre Vieja's island location and steep slopes fit the profile of catastrophic tsunami-causing eruptions, such as the one at Anak Krakatu. Several researchers had forecasted potential tsunamis from a Cumbre Vieja eruption, both near and far from the island, but that didn't come to pass. Why not? In short, researchers don't yet know. Cumbre Vieja had several of the characteristic signatures of other volcanoes, like Anak Krakatu and Mount St. Helens, both of which experienced catastrophic flank collapses in which the side of the volcano gave way and led to extensive landslides. The slopes at Cumbre Vieja had been rapidly growing over the last 150,000 to 125,000 years and had begun to show signs of instability, fractures, fissures, and faults over the last 7,000 years. But there were no collapses during the latest eruption. Instead, in the final weeks of the eruption, fractures and a new fissure system split open the side of the volcano. In just two days, a 100-meter-tall cone grew near the summit, and transient vents appeared across the slope. The appearance of large cracks perpendicular to the volcano slopes on its western flank was very unusual. However, it's still not clear what they mean writes Gonzalez. We will have to research them in the coming years to fully understand why they form and whether they are a way for the volcano to release magma pressure or something else. This latest eruption has provided researchers with plenty of data and questions to explore in the coming years, and the answers will hopefully help experts make better predictions about future volcanic risks. The low recurrence eruption rate in the Canary Islands volcanoes made it very difficult to know the full extent of the volcanic activity and its effects on the population, wrote Gonzalez. Documenting and investigating those effects on a real eruption is what makes it possible to make progress and be better prepared for future events. Each eruption makes it possible to better understand them. Our fourth article is by Kurt Kleiner, originally published in Knowable magazine and republished in ours on April 9, 2022. Could high-flying kites power your home? Any kid who's ever flown a kite has learned a lesson. Once you can get the kite off the ground and high into the air, you're more likely to find a steady breeze to keep it aloft. A fledgling wind power industry is taking that lesson to heart. Flying massive kites 200 meters or more above the ground, companies are using the wind they find there to generate electricity. At least 10 firms in Europe and the United States are developing variations of this kind of kite power. If they succeed, kites could make it possible to build wind farms on land that isn't windy enough for conventional wind turbine towers. Kites might also be a better choice for offshore wind power, and one day could even replace at least some anchored towers now in use. It's cheaper to manufacture, cheaper to transport, and also has higher efficiency, says Florian Bauer, co-CEO and chief technology officer of Kitecraft, a Munich-based company developing a kite power system. The carbon footprint is also much smaller, he says. If you have all of those advantages, why would anyone build a conventional wind turbine? He's quoted. But to become a widespread source of electricity, airborne wind energy, as it's also called, needs to overcome a number of technological and commercial hurdles, as Bauer and colleagues describe in an upcoming paper in the 2022 Annual Review of Control, Robotics, and Autonomous Systems. And it will need to demonstrate that it is safe, won't harm wildlife, and won't create intolerable noise and visual disturbances for neighbors. At the moment, Kite Power is in its infancy. Most companies are working on relatively small pilot projects, and none have scaled up their technology to the megawatt range that would make them comparable to conventional wind turbines. But small versions are already on the market. In 2021, Hamburg-based SkySales Power became the first company to offer a commercial product. Its production model consists of a soft, steerable kite up to 180 square meters in area. The kite is attached by an 800-meter tether to a ground station contained in the shipping container. In operation, the kite makes large, graceful figure eights in the sky and powers a ground-based generator capable of an average output of 80 kilowatts, enough to supply electricity to about 60 average U.S. households. That's small compared with a typical 2.75 megawatt wind turbine, but is similar in scale to many portable industrial diesel generators. The unit is designed for use in remote locations away from the power grid. Eventually, companies want to build larger kites capable of generating megawatts of power. They envision hundreds of kites grouped together on wind farms, providing electricity to the grid. Wind close to the ground tends to be slowed down by friction with trees, buildings, and hills, and the ground itself. So the higher you go, the faster the wind can travel. At 500 meters, the breeze moves between 3 to 7 kilometers per hour faster on average than it does at 100 meters. Over the last few decades, there have been a number of proposals for taking advantage of these speedier, elevated winds, including sending up turbines on lighter-than-air craft or suspending them from stationary kites. But most companies, like SkySails, are pursuing an approach that makes use of steerable, computer-controlled kites that fly patterns in the air to harvest more energy. Airborne wind energy systems use two basic ways to generate electricity. Ground-based approaches, like sky sails, using pumping power to run a generator on the ground. The ground-based end of the tether is wound around a winch, and as the kite flies across the wind, it pulls against the tether and unwinds the winch, driving a generator that produces electricity. Then the kite is allowed to float while it is reeled back in, and the cycle starts again. The other approach is to generate the electricity onboard the kite. Onboard generation uses a rigid kite, similar to an airplane wing, which supports small wind turbines. When the kite flies, the wind runs the turbines and electricity generated by the craft is sent down the tether to the ground station. Kitecraft, Bowers company, uses the onboard method, which allows it to make dual use of the turbine blades. During launch and landing, the blades are powered by a motor and become propellers that allow the kite to fly and hover like an airborne drone. Once the kite is at the proper height, the turbines switch to generating energy from the wind. Airborne wind energy kites generate electricity in two basic ways. Pumping power uses the kite's pulling motion to spin a rotating drum on the ground, which powers a generator, producing electricity, yellow When it reaches the end of the tether, the kite is retracted and starts again, using up a small amount of electricity, red. Onboard power is generated by turbines mounted on the kite itself. Onboard generation requires a rigid kite design. Kites offer a potential advantage over today's wind towers in terms of material used. Wind turbine towers require concrete foundations and steel structures just to keep the turbines at the right height. In kite-based systems, the structures are replaced by a relatively small ground station and a lightweight tether. A study by Airborne Wind Europe, a trade association, found that a 50-megawatt kite farm would use 913 metric tons of material over a 20-year lifespan compared with 2,868 metric tons for a typical wind tower farm. Using less material could make kite-based systems both greener and cheaper to build. Kites may also prove useful for deep-water offshore wind generation. Today, when the water is too deep to build a foundation, wind turbines instead float on massive barge-like structures that must be able to bear the turbine's weight to keep them stable. Because kites are less massive, they could use lighter and cheaper barges. But these advantages come at the cost of complexity. For kites to make sense economically, they need to operate for long periods and with little or no human supervision. That prevents a tough computerized control problem, says Chris Vermillion, director of the Control and Optimization for Renewables and Energy Efficiency Lab at North Carolina State University, and an advisor to WindLift, a kite power technology company. The kites aren't simply floating passively in the air. Instead, they use the aerodynamics of the kite to fly crosswind patterns, a bit like a boat tacking back and forth across the wind. Flying perpendicular to the direction of the wind, their wings generate lift and pull even harder against the tether. This extra lift translates into extra speed, which can either pull the tether with more force for ground-based generation, or be turned into greater airspeed to drive onboard turbines faster. Either way, the power available increases by at least an order of magnitude compared to flying without the crosswind motion. Flying crosswind boosts speed, and thus the potential energy a kite can harvest from the wind— Shown here are experimental results for Kite Mills KM1 prototype that show this boost. The blue lines show the kite's low air speeds during takeoff and landing. The yellow lines show the much higher air speeds the kite reaches while flying at higher altitudes in crosswind loops. But such tricky maneuvers require constant adjustment and control of the kites, either by a pilot or computer. Rigid kites are controlled by adjusting steering components, such as flaps and rudders, in the same way that airplanes are flown. Soft kites are controlled by adjusting the length of steering lines, similar to the way a parachute is guided. The most advanced kite systems today are capable of flying under computer control for hours or days at a time, using either onboard or on-ground computers to make constant corrections in the steering. They tend to work very well while the wind remains steady, Vermillion says. But to go mainstream, the kites will have to be able to deal dependably with sudden and unpredictable changes, such as strong wind gusts. They will also need to be able to take off and land automatically, so that they can come down during bad weather and go up when the wind is right. More work needs to be done to bring the technology to the level where operational lifespans of the devices are on the order of years and decades as opposed to demonstrations that last days and weeks, Vermillion says. There's also the problem of scale. Smaller kites are cheaper to make and easier to develop, but because the weight and drag of the tether increases with height, small kites don't operate as well at 300 meters or higher, where the wind tends to be strongest. Companies want to scale up to larger, more efficient kites that can fly higher and produce megawatts of power. But that comes with expense and risk. By sending a set of tiny, mobile windmills high in the sky, the airborne wind energy company Kitecraft generates electricity on board a rigid aircraft. The kite also powers its own takeoff and landing. Still in a prototype phase, such kites could make it possible to build wind farms in more places, or to power remote outposts. Well that brings us to the end of today's articles. To learn more about AirsLA and the types of programs we offer, follow us at facebook.com A-I-R-S-L-A. If you like what's there, please hit the like button. Music provided by Hot Fire. I'm Mike Paul, and I'll be back soon with more informative stories from Ars Technica. Thanks for listening.